From the PA Foundation, I'm Andrea Lowe, and welcome to Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. We are doing something a little bit different today and recording this episode in front of a live audience. For those here in the room, please hold on to your questions until the end of the discussion. And for those listening to the podcast later on, we hope you enjoy this special episode. So let's dive in. According to the Center to Advance Palliative Care, approximately 6 million people in the U.S. could benefit from palliative care services. With the aging population, the need for palliative care will continue to grow. And for PAs, a well-rounded knowledge of this field is essential. Today, we welcome Rose Dierenege-Jean. Rose is a clinical assistant professor at Stony Brook University. She is also employed at Montefiore Medical Center working in palliative care, and at Mercy Medical Center, working in critical care. Also joining us is Rose Rutherford. Rose is a PA working in the Level 1 Trauma Center Emergency Department in Richmond, Virginia. And she also serves as the president of the Virginia Academy of Physician Assistants Executive Board. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. On behalf of PAHPM, um, we would like to say thank you for including us in this podcast. And both Rose and I are uh, members of that organization. We're both board members of that organization. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. So before we dive into the topic at hand, we at Vital Minds always like to ask our guests what inspired them to work in medicine and ultimately become a PA. Well, with me, when I was 15, my guidance counselor, uh, saw that I had something that I needed to do in healthcare, so she placed me in the nursing program. So I live in New York, so there are two schools in New York that have vocational schools. So the, that particular school had licensed practical nursing. So my route started in nursing. That program is one week of high school and one week where you are in the hospital training. So upon graduation, I was able to take my boards as a licensed practical nurse. When I went to college, my route still remained to become a registered nurse. However, one of my classmates suggested physician assistant, so I researched it, and um, I had the qualifications for it. I interviewed, and that's how I became a PA. Well, I've been in medicine for a long time in one way or another, and started as a tech, and then moved into the laboratory. And as I moved up the chain of command, in my director, retired, and when they approached me to fill her position, I realized that that would remove me further from clinical care and from patient care, which is really what I enjoyed and what I wanted to do. So I went to a job fair um, that Bonds Course in Richmond was holding, and there was uh, someone there talking about being a PA, and I realized that was exactly what I wanted. So I applied and went to PA school. Awesome. So I think that shows we all can take different paths and end up kind of in the same profession. All right. So let's jump in. Can you explain in a bit more detail how palliative care differs from other forms of care PAs provide? Well, palliative care, in my opinion, you all know I practice emergency medicine. So in my opinion, palliative care is whole patient care. I feel that everyone practices a little bit of palliative care. Palliative care focuses on quality versus quantity and does integrate the patient's plans, their goals, and the patient's family. So 
it's a little bit step beyond focused exams and, and focusing on disease and takes into consideration the whole patient care. So in my opinion, it's part of all of our care. So as uh, a physician assistant who works in palliative care, our goals is to make life better for both patient and family. So it's very family oriented um, to set the, to start the discussion early with the families, especially if and during the end of life situations, or it could be serious illness situations. So our, our goal is to make that the members of the families comfortable. Usually um, when they reach that stage where they do need a palliative care consult, we usually have a meeting with the entire family um, so that we can discuss their disease, the questions family members may have, and um, the decision that the person who's affected by a certain illness is making. So we focus on goals of care at that point when it comes to um, taking care of our patients. So for our listeners who might not be as close to palliative care, I want to clear up some confusion. Many people assume palliative care and hospice care are one in the same, but there is some nuance there. Can you explain the difference? Palliative care, you're right, they are both the same, um, but it goes again towards goals of care. Um, there's something called GIP, which is uh, general inpatient, where a person may be admitted to the hospital, let's just say it's a patient with colon cancer, and they're having small bowel obstructions, so they needed to be admitted in the hospital. So they, they are they're therefore admitted under palliative care. So it's more of a timeline. So if somebody has less than six months uh, um, with, within their lifespan, so they fall under hospice care. So um, one and the same, but we both provide comfort care for the patient. We make sure that nobody suffers. Again, uh, communication with the family, family, um, sometimes when they are admitted in the hospital, in our hospital, they can also be hospice. So we have uh, different venues of hospice that can be given within the hospital or at the, if they reach that end of life situation where they can no longer get treatment or uh, the goal is to uh, focus on comfort, they could either do that at home or within the hospital or other facilities. For example, in our area, we have Calvary that deals with that. So depending on their insurances or the wishes of the patient, um, we hospice fall into that. Palliative care can be initiated at any stage in a chronic disease. It doesn't necessarily have to be just end of life. So as Rose was saying, it's a, a timeline so if you have a chronic disease that may eventually end up being your, your fatal diagnosis, um, but maybe at that point you're not really at that, that stage yet, but you still need extra, a little bit extra care, a little bit of, of quality, increased quality care, increased social care, um, you can be in, in a patient of palliative. And I think that's a really good point to point out to PAs who don't know as much about it is that it could really be at any point in the care. I think that's mm -hmm. very important. So in the past, there were more limitations on how PAs could deliver palliative care. Can you speak to that? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that hospice care started with the nurses. So we're grateful that they were able to bring awareness regarding hospice care. However, we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to delivering care. As PAs, um, we um, can deliver care 
in the hospice situation. We, are, we could serve as attendings, as a hospice attending, but there are certain limitations that we may have. For example, um, which we're working on right now with uh, home health. Um, we cannot do the face-to-face -face for home health. If your patient needs to go home where they need the services for them to enjoy their last days with their families, only the attending can do the face-to-face. -face. As a physician assistant, we cannot do it. We can certainly start the paperwork. So that delays care for the patient. A lot of times I've had patients on the inpatient side, they're ready to go home, everything is set. However, until that physician does the face-to-face -face signature, they're unable to go home. And sometimes their wish is, I, wanna, I would like to die home. Unfortunately, because of that delay, they end up dying in the hospital instead of where they want to go and die at home peacefully. Well, I, that's a great point um, and, and great pointing out a lot of the barriers that happen in the care and the hiccups. Um, so in your experience, when you're working with someone who needs palliative care, do you find yourself interacting more with the patient's family in your normal course of activity than you would in other care scenarios? And is that a big part of your role? Definitely. We speak to families all the time. We have to get them involved when it comes to palliative care because that's their loved one. Mm -hmm. They're the one that, that's suffering. Sometimes they do have a healthcare proxy where the person can be an advocate for them. And other times um, they're both making decision. Again, whenever we have that consult, um, the patient reached that point. In our hospital, not only is it for cancer patient, it's also for a patient with end-stage renal disease, also end-stage heart failure. We do have patients left ventricular assist device where um, they don't meet the criteria to move on to get a heart transplant. So these are the people that we have in our hospital. So it's a group effort. So when it's a multidisciplinary care, so where we have the social worker, the nutritionist, um, where we have the chaplain. So everybody comes together to give care to that patient. And yet we wanted to deliver that high quality care so that the person who is at that stage can, ha can die with dignity and respect. Yes, and because we focus on the, the quality, um, the family is included. It's not just disease treatment. And so especially in the ER when we're in a situation where we realize this is more than someone just coming in for an illness or a treatment that we can treat and discharge home, that there's more that's going to be needed, we will include family. Um, support structure is very, very important. Um, for the patient, not just physically, but also emotionally and mentally, to know that they have that support system, they have that structure that, you know, oftentimes we, we think about, um, you know, autonomy and patients making decisions for their care in, you know, in emergency medicine and, and focused care. You know, we're, we're very concerned with making sure that the patient is informed that they can make these decisions. When you're, when you're treating a patient or you have a patient and you realize that they need a little bit more, it's, it's very important to include their support structure and their family to help support them. Thank you. From an ethics standpoint, how is it best to approach a situation in which families are forced to make vital choices while keeping in mind the patient's best interests and comfort? Well, first and foremost, with compassion and empathy. Um, you know, we, we hear, but for the grace of God, there goes I. It could be you in that situation. So oftentimes in the ER, you know, 
when I'm in the hustle and bustle, I have to take a minute and think, how would I want to be treated in that situation? What if that were my mother? What if that were my spouse? What if that were my child? And come to the patient with that in mind. Um, the family, it, you know, there, there's, there's a lot going on at one time. And especially if it's a new diagnosis, which, which often in the ER it is. They come in for one thing and we do tests and we come back with incidental findings that will impact their life, their family's life, and everybody involved. So compassion and empathy and making sure that you're present and there for the family and not hurried and go into the next patient. So they feel that, that you care. So as a palliative care provider, we have to also remember it is a judgment-free environment. Uh, there are cases where the patient is making the decision um, to no longer further their treatment um, because of suffering or other choices. One of the things that we do, we make sure that they understand their illnesses and then understand the consequences of not getting treatment. But at the same time, we're also a support system for them um, to help them to uh, make sure that whatever decisions that they make were there for them. That way we don't add that extra burden on them because this is a difficult time. We're not facing that situation and um, we can empathetically place ourselves in our patients' uh, um, shoes. However, this is their decision and we have to always remember not to be judgmental of their decision and to provide that support that they need, especially for those with serious illness or are terminally ill. So I think you both make really good points um, because you work in different settings, but the running theme is, is that you're empowering the patient and including the family at the same time, which is very important. So as care providers, the nature of palliative care can make it very emotionally heavy work. Do you think that this takes a toll on providers and how do you manage that? Well, I think medicine as a whole can take a toll. And most certainly when you're dealing with um, emotional situations that, that, that you're involved in, that you have to approach humanely versus just strictly clinical. Um, personally, myself, I knit and do yoga, and that helps me. But also, I think a, a support system for the provider. Um, it could be our team, our, our coworkers, um, our ancillary staff are there to support us. And talking, conversation, talking, talking with our patients, talking with our coworkers. I could give you an example of a, a case that I had um, where the father of a 16-year-old, he's 45 years old and he's end stage, um, actively dying of colon cancer. So how do you deal with such a heart-wrenching situation as a provider? Because you have to be objective and you gotta care for both families and the patient in this situation. Um, uh, since I was on the shift where the family called me at least three times to go in the room to make sure, does he have a heartbeat? Mm -hmm. Is it the end yet? So each time you have to have that level of compassion. And there are times the tears are coming. <laughs> so you have to take a setback because you have to be strong for the family. So when I saw the 16-year-old, when that time came and the father finally passed. As a team, we prepared for the 16-year-old because she had to be pulled out of school. Mm. And so um, to have to see her 
going to see her, you know, to go in the room and finally see her father at the state that he was in was heart-wrenching as providers. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a difficult job, but somebody has to do it. So we, uh, we get trained. So in times like these, we do get the debriefing. We do have support system. In our hospital, we have music therapy. And if sometimes you have to take a break, take a step back, we were we are allowed that time, and they have uh, we can make a phone call and we'll listen to soothing music, or they'll send somebody for a massage. So they have different steps in different uh, hospitals that can be used to uh, help the providers cope better in these situations. It's never easy seeing somebody, uh, seeing dealing with death and dying, and seeing somebody in their in their end stages of life. It's great. I think that's great initiatives that you have in your your employee setting to help prevent against burnout, I love it. So it is said that lack of training and awareness of palliative care among health professionals is a major barrier to improving access. Do you find this to be an issue in the United States? There is a lack of uh, palliative care physician assistant. Um, our world is small, but it's growing. At one point, uh, we didn't have PAs working in palliative care. So now we do in our hospital. We are four, so two during the day and two at night. And so um, we're trying to improve things um, within the schools. One of the steps that I tried, I believe our hospital is the only hospital that has it. I, we opened the door to physician assistant students uh, mm -hmm. where they do during their senior year, where they're doing their training, they can opt to do palliative care um, at a hospital in the Bronx in Montefiore Medical Center for five weeks. So that's one step that we, we have taken to do that. But as PAHPM, we do have um, literature, we have courses, we also have webinars, for example, the MOLTS form, not every state has it, but New York now has it. So as of June of 2020, we should be able to fill out the most form. And just for our listeners and for um, others who may not know, just can you get a little bit of description of what the MOLT form is? The MOLT form is um, medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. So when you, it, you can initiate it at any point of life. Um, so let's just say you were just diagnosed um, with cancer. You're not end of life. Um, we don't know what the measures are. So this is a form where you can um, describe the treatments that you want. So there are some patients, I don't want to be on a machine. I don't want to have any tubes. But if I do have an infection, please treat my infection. So that's where it comes into discussion with the family and the patient where they can designate what uh, life-sustaining treatments that they need or want. So my facility does not have such a robust palliative care department as Rose's does. But what, what I try to do is provide any kind of support or education or advice to my coworkers and you know, continually remind them that if they have any questions or they have any situations that arise that they think may need ethics or palliative care that I am always there as a resource. And I've received calls about, you know, what do you advise? What would you do? What do you think would be the best? So, you know, it's still a work in progress in my facility, but I, I think being there as a resource and being open to my coworkers. And I think we touched upon a little bit the next question, but given the aging population, um, we obviously see a greater uh, need for palliative care and PAs in palliative care. 
What barriers do you see for the next generation of health professionals who choose palliative care as a career choice? Well, as the, uh, the population does age, um, we, we're going to see an, a more of a need for this. The population um, as a whole, we're living longer. Um, medical technology is advancing. So palliative care just is, should be and is a necessity in treatment, in medicine, um, as we discover more diseases and more treatments um, and focus on quality versus quantity and focus on patients' goals and their desires for their, their life with these diseases. Um, barriers would be, for instance, the fact that, and what we're working on now, Rose touched on that earlier, is the um, being able to do that face-to-face -face for home health care. And I feel that's necessary, whether you're in palliative care, hospice, or in the ER on a Friday night at midnight when you have a patient come in that may very well benefit from home health care and a palliative consult versus a social admit. So also, we still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I'm going to say that again and again. But we've come a very long way as palliative care PAs. So lack of recognition, I would say, is a barrier. Um, a lot of times our roles and our values are not recognized in palliative care uh, when delivering care to uh, serious illness patients. And also there's a lack of certification. So um, although we are PA certified, but we're not certified in palliative care, but we do have the experience and the education to talk to our patients and starting that goals of care discussion early. And then um, they don't have a lot of programs out there, the PA programs are out there that do have preceptorship mm -hmm. in uh, palliative care medicine. Yeah, great, very great point. So, I'm sorry, one, one of, I just want to uh, inject one more thing. The other issue that we're talking about, um, direct payment for Medicare. So, and especially with palliative care, if we cannot directly bill and be directly paid for Medicare, how can they recognize our value and recognize our contribution and what we do if we're an invisible workforce being billed underneath the physician? Very great points. So because we have an audience present for today's recording, I want to open up the floor for any questions. I think these are very difficult uh, discussions and decisions. Are there resources that the uh, association provides? Most definitely. So the question was, are there resources that can be provided for PAs and everyone as far as this topic in quality and palliative care? Well, we have our organization, phpm.org. Go on Google and you'll find our organization. We do have board members if you have any questions um, on palliative care itself and uh, the rules and regulation, what's out there, where we are, where we're going. That website has all the information. And if you're able to email uh, one of us, one of us will, will get back to you for any questions that uh, you may have. So we meet once a month as a group uh, to discuss um, what, how we can improve PAs in palliative care and hospice. So that website is available uh, for anyone to view at any point and um, any questions that you may have, we definitely will get back to you. Yes. I have a question about making the decision that palliative care is now warranted for a patient. It's not always a straightforward decision. You talked about the collaborative team that's part of this, but 
there, there might be cases where the patient doesn't believe they're ready for palliative care, or the family doesn't believe that their relative is ready. Who, who makes the ultimate decision on these kinds of things? So the question was um, basically asking who makes the ultimate decision, especially if the patient and or family is not ready um, to sort of make that hard decision when it comes to the palliative care space. Well, I think that would necessitate a discussion. I mean, why do they feel they're not ready? Do they not understand their diagnosis? Are they scared because they think palliative care means that they're dying and they're not going to get treatment? I mean, I, I think it would really um, necessitate further discussion and further exploring. So that's where experience and education comes. So anyone, um, I'll use my hospital for example, I used to be part of the trans heart transplant team. As part of the team, um, they have all, again, multidisciplinary, including a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a social worker to see the patient, Palliative care is also involved. The patient is fine, they're not actively dying, but to start the discussion early, um, we do have a palliative care uh, representative that the patient has to see, because there are gonna, once you do receive your heart, there are gonna be uh, uh, certain um, rules and regulations for the patient to follow, also certain risks. Um, one of the risks is that while you're on the table, you might die, and if that happens and you're on life-sustaining uh, support, what is the next step? So we start the discussion early, but however, you have to have the level of education um, to learn how to communicate with the patient. You'll be surprised um, when our attendings do those consults with the patients, even if they were, as you, may, as you brought out, that uh, they don't wanna deal with palliative care, but because they've had that discussion early, we've implanted into their minds, should something happen, they know that we're always there to recall. We're not there to make the decision for the patient. We're there to inform them and give them an, um, an educational background about their illnesses, the consequences, the risks, um, so that they could make an informed decision. Thank you. Well, I wanna thank our guests for responding to questions from our audience. And Rose, you touched upon this a little bit as far as having some resources, but what resources would you recommend a, for the PA student that's wanting to get into it, and also for PAs wanting to kind of transition into palliative care or just for general information purposes. I'm going to say it again, <laughs> PAHPM.org. We have a, a lot of resources that uh, that is available to PAs, PA students. Um, we Whatever questions you may have, even like... Today, let's just say someone may ask me a question. If, it, if I don't know the answer, we'll always get back to you. We're very friendly. Um, just go on our website and you'll see, you'll get questions answered. Even the simplest questions can be answered on our website. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, both of you, for participating in today's discussion. And if there's one thing you hope listeners take away from this topic, what would it be? As clinicians, we are all palliative care PAs. So the, when you see your patient and they, let's just say you are a hemonc PA and you start that discussion early with your patient, you are a palliative care PA. Um, if you're outpatient and you're speaking to your patient about healthcare proxy, again, you're assuming that role. So if you feel uncomfortable and you need to educate yourself more, please, um, we'll be happy to help you along that course. So I wanna leave that, that we are all palliative care PAs, so don't be afraid to get in there. Start the discussion early with your patient about goals of care. And I agree, we all practice palliative care. And I think that's a very, as a practitioner, that's a very great 
um, perspective and sort of global perspective to look at. So palliative care is a very serious topic. As PAs, we certainly have a role to play in recognizing the needs of the patient as well as the patient's family. Thank you both so much for lending your expertise to us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Visit the PA Foundation website at pa-foundation.org for additional resources. And while you're there, be sure to catch up on all of our Vital Mind episodes. Until next time, everyone, I'm Andrea Lowe, and this is Vital Minds.